Hello everyone and welcome to the third instalment of The Witness podcast. My name is Jess and I'm a senior editor at The Journal. We are X University's academic politics journal, publishing daily articles on our website, which you can find at thewitnessexter.com. These are written and submitted by members of our academic community. If you would like to get involved with The Witness, writing articles or getting involved with the team, you can email us at thewitness.exter at outlook.com or message the Facebook page. This week on the podcast, I sat down with Laura and Georgia, who are from the Foundation for Uyghur Freedom. The theme of our discussion was the ongoing oppression of the Uyghur Muslims in China. We talked about why it's important to discuss the oppression, the Emma Riley UN issue, the genocide amendment, forced sterilisation, orphanages, organ harvesting, corporate complicity and what we can do next. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello everyone, um, welcome to the third episode of The Witness podcast. Um, I'm Jess and I'm a senior editor here at The Witness. Um, I am here with this week two people from the Foundation for Uyghur Freedom. Um, we have Laura and we have Georgia. Uh, welcome both of you. Um, thank you very much for coming and taking time out of your Saturday to record this. Um, we are here today to talk about the oppression of the Uyghur Muslims. Um, we as a like you know a politics journal and academic journal but it's really important that we discuss this um which is why we've dedicated a series of articles focusing on highlighting where there are gaps in actually academic understanding and student understanding but also we think it's important to get two people from the foundation who are dedicated and volunteer run to highlighting where actually we can be doing more and where there's information that really should be brought to light um so why do you two feel that this is important what what does your foundation do you know i'm just interested to see and to hear from you about what your foundation aims to achieve and whether it's you know what this started from um yeah thank you for having us on here first of all and for talking about this issue um well it started back in only october time i learned about this issue uyghur issue years ago and was always astonished that no one was talking about it. And once I got some more free time, um, I decided to start it. Georgia was basically the first person on board um, and we've been at it since then just to try and raise awareness. And a lot of our focus, both of us are quite political. A lot of our focus is about raising awareness within the British political sphere and having action being taken within our country because it's um, absolutely astonishing. Well, it's astonishing to me, um, first of all, that almost half of the British public don't associate the word oppressive with China, but also the fact that our British political system is complicit um, in this genocide is what's going on. You know, we support companies that, um, you know, engage with this kind of genocide, whether it's surveillance, we engage with the Chinese government. Um, yeah, so we're, we're trying to change that and raise some awareness in the public and also um, force MPs and the government to do something. Yeah, I, I agree. I think this is extremely important to talk about. Georgia, do you have anything to add to that? Um, I think Laura uh, definitely summarised most of it. Um, also, we're, we are working on just sort of grassroots raising awareness. Um, so I write articles, Laura writes articles and student papers and national publications, anywhere we can get published really, uh, just to spread the word. Um, because I think that you know, there are so many amazing organisations uh, doing work in the UK and, and internationally, but I think it never hurts to have more voices on board. Um, 
uh yeah and we have uh, obviously quite a few volunteers from Exeter yeah yeah we're all, we're all quite keen um in Exeter at the moment you know as I said the reason I know about this is because one of my friends who's studying law um started sharing the page around you know foundation for week of freedom um instagram page around and it's gained a lot of traction because people want to know about it um once they hear about it they want to know more and i think that's the crucial thing i think that's why it's important to keep sort of reiterating what we are and talking about it because then people want to learn more um and figure out where actually they can do better um so I think it's important to talk about the UN here, isn't it, really? It's, it's an international body. It's it's supposed to be leading the way in humanitarian effort and sort of giving the international community uh, sort of like a, a almost a blueprint for how to act. And, you know, what do you think they've been doing or doing wrong? Where do you think they're going wrong with this? Because nothing has changed. China is still doing this and it will continue to do this for, for the foreseeable future. So, I mean... First of all, when you're talking about the United Nations, I think it's it's important to acknowledge that it's one of those kind of post-war institutions. It's 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 its aim is to kind of safeguard to safeguard human rights, to safeguard human dignity. Um, I believe in one of the founding documents, you know, the idea is to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war. You know, the generation that was founding it had experienced World War II and even the First World War as well, um, and genocide, of course, the Holocaust, uh, those kind of uh, you know, major uh, waves of totalitarianism in the 20th century, which of course went um, on, you know, after the Second World War, even in Europe with uh, the Soviet Union and its satellite states. So I think that whatever we can say about the UN and how much we can criticize it, it is an important force because it is where all those, all those, uh, you know, countries in the world, they, they, it's the only place where they meet and, and discuss. Uh, uh, and I think that, you can't necessarily uh, you can't you can't necessarily um, underestimate that. But with that, um, there are you know many issues. I think that when the UN was was initially founded in the late nineteen forties, um, the main membership consisted of kind of Western democracies, which obviously had uh, many overlapping views of human rights and uh, you know human government um, as uh, the years progressed especially going into the 1970s, uh, many other, many other uh, states joined and uh, we're now in a position, and we have been in for several decades, where the vast majority of UN member states are non-democracies. They're, um, well, no country is perfect, of course. Um, they're non-democracies, they're places where human rights, you know, basically aren't safeguarded by the government. They're places where there are massive issues, you know, gender and equality, um, civil rights, peace brutality, um, forced labor, like we're, we're talking about in China. And the idea of the UN is obviously one nation, one vote. So that means that it is dominated by non-democracies. And of course, apart from the General Assembly, where like I was saying, it's one nation, one vote, there's the UN Security Council, which has five permanent members. So the US, France, and UK, which are obviously Western democracies, and then we have Russia and China. And all of those powers all have equal veto power. So that means that they can't necessarily, you know, recommend something to be investigated by the International Criminal Court without all those five members voting. So that means that if there are ongoing human rights issues in China, which there are, of course, and in Russia, which there are, um, those kind of things aren't necessarily going to be given the weight that they should at the United Nations because it's not in the interest of those powers to either be self-critical or to be criticising people that um, they want to have their back. So, for example, um, you had uh, in the 2010s, um, 
it feels strange to say the 2010s, but <laughs> you know, future generations will be saying that, so we might as well start now because we're not in them anymore. Um, for example, in the 2010s, um, the Syrian conflict, which is obviously still ongoing, um, but ISIS, for example, which was a big, a big and very brutal component of that, um, has now, you know, it, it, its power is a lot, uh, has been majorly diminished. Um, so essentially, what happened is, as I'm sure everyone really is aware. Um, they essentially perpetrated a genocide against the Yazidi Christian minority in the region, uh, kind of the borderlands of Syria and Iraq. Um, and while many kind of Western leaders, uh, even the UK Foreign Secretary, I believe, said that he believed it was a genocide, and there was plenty of evidence, even internally, that it was a genocide and it was intended to be so, it was never even it was never even the thought of the governments of you know the US, France, uh, and the UK to try and try and get the UN to take action or to try and recommend it to the ICC because they knew that China and Russia would veto it because they um, you know they're allied with the Assad regime who would have had to be involved in kind of issues of documentation and transparency in terms of that. So um, you know it just never would have happened. And this is this is an issue that's been repeated you know so many times in the United Nations and it's not it's not even uh, isolated to uh, the, Syria, the Syrian conflict or, or the issues in China that we're talking about today. Um, and one, I'd also like to recommend in case, in case anyone is listening is not necessarily familiar with some of the criticism of the United Nations, there's a really great documentary um, from 2009 uh, called You and Me, and it's by Army Horowitz, who was a former investment banker, and he actually quit his job at Lehman Brothers to make this documentary. And it's kind of, a lot of it's quite tongue in cheek, but it does approach some very serious issues for the UN in terms of peacekeeping, in terms of its funding, its approach to, um, you know, nuclear weapons. So uh, I would encourage anyone to watch that still, even though it's from 2009, the structure of the UN is very much similar um, and enduring as it was in 2009. So many of the structural issues that it touches on still exist now and are very important in, um, in kind of, you know, I'm trying to think of the word, what would it be like? Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> they're very, these kind of structural issues they endure so they're still um very counterproductive to the human rights issues that we're trying to discuss and get and get um more voices on and so uh yeah one of the issues that i actually wrote about late last year and uh that we're trying to give a lot of our time to with the foundation for Weaker freedom is an issue that was brought up actually i believe in early 2019 by emma riley so emma riley is a uk born uh, human rights lawyer um at the united nations and so uh, this kind of came back into the public eye, even though it was already information um, that was known. It came back into the public eye in early November because she uh, she had an interview uh, with Majid Nawaz, who's a very popular broadcaster on LBC. And uh, in this interview, she accused the UN Human Rights Council of deliberately passing the names of Uyghur dissidents to Chinese Communist Party uh, representatives at the UN. And she claimed actually that before each UNHCR, HRC rather, <laughs> session, um, the Chinese representatives were deliberately asked the UN whether or not certain people were planning to come, um, as in, you know, for example, uh, more outspoken human rights lawyers like Emma Riley, um, which is actually against the con uh, against kind of the, the conventions of uh, the UN Human Rights Council uh, meetings. And um, it's actually, so like I said, it, it, it was reported by the media, I believe, and also 2019, but um, it actually came to public light in 2017, I believe, um, through an open letter um, that was released by UN Watch. So uh, UN Watch or United Nation Watch, Nations Watch is a um, Geneva-based NGO, and it's pretty much that mission to sort of hold the UN to account based on its own charter. I mentioned that earlier, it's kind of guiding principles um, that it 
technically, um, you know, it professes to stand by, but realistically it doesn't because it is dominated by non-democracies. Um, and so in, in this letter, it was revealed um, about them asking about that and about them handing the names of the dissidents. And also, um, uh, this isn't just the case, sorry, for Uyghur dissidents. Um, it's also the case for, you know, Hong Kong-related dissidents, uh, Tibetan-related dissidents, that kind of thing. Um, because, uh, yeah, so obviously our foundation focuses on um, the Uyghur issue, but it's also important to remember that, um, obviously across the world, but also in China specifically, um, there are major human rights issues against, uh, you know, all manner of ethnic and religious and political groups. And definitely the Hong Kong crackdown, I would say, is probably, is probably getting equalish attention to the week one in terms of the Western media. It, it's often reported on, especially as the British government kind of go back and forth and say that they'll help in certain ways or they won't. Obviously yesterday, um, I think the Times reported that um, British nationals overseas uh, or British national overseas documents, um, which are possessed by many people in Hong Kong will now not be recognized by the Chinese authorities in Hong Kong, which could, um, you know, it could really endanger those people who, who want to leave because, um, you know, the new national security law might, you know, bring their families and bring themselves into danger, um, which is very unfortunate. Um, and yes, so like I was saying, this is happening at the UN. Um, so, it, you know, it's such a scandal and it's funny because, well, it's not funny. I mean, I was writing this article late 2020 and when I was looking uh, sort of how to open the article, I ended up opening it with, or closing it rather, with talking about how, you know, this basically hadn't been reported on. Since since that interview with Najib Nawaz, and you know it's it's not really popped up back on the mainstream media radar since then, which is scandalous, really. Um, especially with you know the U.S. government designating um, the situation in Xinjiang as a genocide, and um, the genocide amendment, um, which is Britain's parliament parliament in February on February 9th, I believe, which obviously Laura's going to talk more about. You know these issues are in the media, but for some reason the UN is getting a free pass when it comes to these things, which is it's, it's really heartbreaking because, you know, these people, they're not just numbers, they're not, you know, faces on the television screen, they're real people with real lives and families and friends. And um, so many international and national bodies, and of course the Chinese government are getting away with their in this crime. It really is quite unbelievable if you think about the fact that the UN is supposed to be the body where you take cases such as these that you actually think shouldn't you know you never think of you're going to see again you know you think of the holocaust and you actually think you know what they have millions and millions of citizens in their re-education camps which are to all intents purposes concentration camps and the united nations is pretty much stuck and finds itself mm, sorry i feel like also i didn't necessarily explain um the implications uh, enough of what the handing over of those names does sorry so um what it does is obviously it lets um it lets the uh, those chinese authorities know um who those people are and they probably have friends and family members in china who are then sent to concentration camps or sent to forced labor camps or sent there are lots of personal reasons that way yeah, yeah, there are concrete reports of that happening because of these names handed over by the United Nations. And this is also something happening with uh, different national governments allied with China to a certain extent, like Turkey just signed an extradition treaty with China in um, late 2020, which means that they'll be handing over names and also possibly uh, allowing, you know, actually facilitating the handover of people. Um, so it's its impact on those people and also their families uh, and friends who are um, still based in that area. And subject to the jurisdiction of the Chinese government, obviously. Sorry, I just want—I just wanted to clarify that because I feel like I didn't necessarily explain it well enough in the first point. <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, no, it's, it's an important point to make actually because I think 
you know, it's quite known that lots of shady stuff does happen in big organizations like this because a lot of it is behind closed doors. Um, but it's when it's reported in the mass media that actually you do sit there and question why it's not widely, you know, more widely reported. And I think the the pandemic at the moment is playing hand in this because it is dominating the news. Mm. Um, and in fact, you are seeing a lot of news like this just lost. Um, and Emma Riley is being threatened with her job. She's been taken to court multiple times by the UN to shut her up. She is going through, you know, a turmoil of her own to try and get this out there. And she has dedicated, I think it's near on a decade, if not more, of her life to trying to raise awareness to this so you know there are some people out there who are really really trying but she is being suppressed at every single avenue um because this is happening and people are being sent to concentration camps they are losing family members as a result of these names being passed over it's it's disgusting yeah um there's just there's no way to even justify any of the means that you know they're using to try and shut her up it's just it's a it's blatantly gagging um and it is really concerning, especially because she's so well recognized as a human rights lawyer. You know, she she works for the UN. You'd think that they'd actually hold her in a bit of in, in a higher regard to actually raising awareness for something of this um, and highlighting actually that there is a gap in their structure in in sorting in in leading in this sort of area. This is where they're supposed to demonstrate that they are going to lead. Um, I suppose that kind of leads on to the genocide amendment, doesn't it, Laura? And sort of yeah i mean in regards to the un's um sort of failures and um lack of action essentially this is a perfect example of where the uk can actually step up and do something independently uh without the un because at the moment there is you know the notion of genocide designation although it might not seem a lot for most people because it's like oh it's just a word actually it really really matters both legally but also practically for um you know people who are going through that and Uyghurs around the world who are fighting for their family members in Xinjiang um at the moment genocide designation the normal route is through international courts uh through the UN um and those avenues have been blocked off because like Georgia was explaining China Russia's but particularly China's vetoing powers um the point about the genocide amendment is that this could bring the that power back to the UK um and it would be a massive massive step um for for the UK in regards to human rights but also for Uyghurs because you know Uyghurs have been denied for so long their day in court and this would give it to them um but essentially what the genocide amendment is is it's an amendment to the trade bill it was put forward by a man called lord alton um, in the house of lords and it would allow members of groups such as the uyghurs to call on uk courts to review evidence and determine if their treatment amounts to genocide now for those of you who don't know, which isn't unreasonable, it is a very, very high legal threshold to reach genocide. So it's not something that can be done easily. Um, if that were to be determined and UK courts would determine it was a genocide, uh, bilateral trade agreements between the perpetrating country, as in China um, and the UK, they would be nullified. Um, the new amendment, because the first one was um, voted down in the House of Commons a couple of weeks ago, um, the new amendment which is being brought, like Georgia said in early February, um, will have to lead to parliamentary approval. So if it is determined genocide, parliament will have to go, yes, I accept that the trade agreement should be nullified. Um, we lost, unfortunately, by 11 votes. So we only actually needed roughly about six more votes for it to pass, which just shows so massively how much people can influence this. 
Um, this is not something that we can leave to chance. Uh, you have to get hold of your members of parliament. You have to lobby them. You have to tell them that you want them to support this because if it's a matter of six votes that can be the difference between it passing and not, we genuinely have a say in it. So like I said, so going back to the House of the Lords very shortly and it's expected in the Commons on the 9th of February and it would really be monumental um, because it would for the first time seriously in law link trade and genocide which is something that countries are really nervous to do um, and I understand why you know it's a big step but it would for the first time say actually we're not willing to trade with a country we're not willing for our country to share goods and give you know uh, favourable trade agreements with countries that are genocidal against their own people that doesn't work for us um, and for many Uyghur activists I actually interviewed um, a Uyghur activist Nerziman um, whose family are in concentration camps her two brothers and her parents in Xinjiang and she lives in Turkey she said to me very clearly um, that the number one thing that needs to be done is to essentially to link the trade and the genocide she said that's all that China is cares about that's all that the government is affected by when their economy starts to falter and that comes through you know uh, cancelling trade agreements that comes through individuals not buying from certain brands so that is it does make a big difference um, and I do and you know we need to move away essentially from the as Georgia and I will know a lot about the Cameron David Cameron George Osborne period the golden age as they like to call it um, with China you know where we essentially as a country swept human rights under the carpet for an easy life with China and good trade. So um, I think we need to, as a country, recognize what our values are and stand up for them on a global scale. And however much the government tells you, oh, we don't have bilateral trade agreements with China um, and we're not planning to, that's a lie. They are planning to, conversations are going on about trade agreements. However much they say, oh, it's not to do with the courts, the courts shouldn't get involved, it gives them too much power. They are contradicting themselves. They have said for years, it is not up to politicians to determine whether a genocide is taking place. That is up for the courts. It shouldn't be Keir Starmer versus Boris Johnson choosing whether a genocide is taking place depending on political motive. That's not how genocide designation works. So this is absolutely in line with our values. It's absolutely in line with our constitution. And if whoever's listening cares about this you have to you have to pressure your MPs for it because it really really matters yeah um I think it is actually really important that everyone listening um if you are willing to um contact Ben Bradshaw if you're an extra um he is very responsive and actually he does um relay our views um I've spoken to him on many occasions and he is very responsive and he is very willing to listen to students because we do make up a large proportion of Exeter um and even your home MPs, you know, we, if you're a university, you've got two MPs that you can use. You can say, you can, you know, for instance, mine is conservative at home, mine here is Labour. So the Tories who we need to target just yeah. yeah, yeah. But if we can keep pressuring, even just, even if it's Labour, you're pressuring, at least you're pressuring them to keep putting pressure on the Tories because we're not going to be seeing this in, you know, on, on Wednesdays at half 12, 12, half 12 in PMQs. This isn't where this sort of stuff happens. It's, it's you know, in the corridors of the Commons and Parliament. And this is where this sort of negotiation happens. So, yeah, if I can reiterate Laura's point, get in touch with your MPs. I don't think you can underestimate how much it actually impacts because they have to take a note of every single person that writes into them they have to record all the information of every single constituent who emails them who calls them who wants to make a statement because 
that is what they do so yeah I, I you have to remember you pay their wages and you vote yeah. for them so yeah if you do it you have an impact on them they're not just going to ignore you they have yeah. to answer you so put it out there the more the word Uyghur is in MPs inboxes the more that there will be a change the more genocide amendment is in their inboxes the more they'll have to sit up and listen so yeah I urge that yeah I mean I don't know if you remember the Belly Majinga case um with you know she died from um somebody assaulting her um from coronavirus but everybody you know shared across social media platforms templates literally just to send to their mps and bombarded them with this um and it got into parliament you know there were reviews into it whether it's successful or not there were reviews into it it made it it made noise and it got traction so yeah and we've got email templates so i'll send that link over to you later and you can put it up wherever but we've got an email uh, a website where you can just go on and put your postcode and it's and you can send an email immediately to your mp so it is we do we making it easy i promise <laughs> yeah no I, I think it's a really important thing to raise um i think you know i'm very keen to talk about forced sterilization i know georgia you've um i think you mentioned it earlier that actually you've got a few stats on actually the reality of sterilization and the impact it has um it's not something that is pleasant to talk about but it is extremely relevant and it's extremely important too because it is inhumane and it is preventing innocent people from having families it's preventing them from having futures um just because china designates them to be a certain ethnic group and therefore terrorists so um georgia if you wanted to pick up on that yeah, absolutely. I guess it's also sort of um, probably helpful just to summarise how forced, what forced sterilisation, um, you know, its presence in history. So forced sterilisation, um, particularly uh, particularly against women, um, is really, it's, a, it's been a hallmark of totalitarianism throughout the 20th century and, you know, colonialism before that. Um, it happened in, in Australia, um, Canada and the US against um, the native populations. Um, in the Holocaust, um, uh, Jewish and, and other minority uh, uh, detainees in concentration camps, um, uh, they had experiments on them and forced sterilization was often part of that. Um, in the Soviet Union, um, it, it was a feature of uh, some of their oppressive techniques. Um, so it's not, a, it's not a new technique, but it's, it's one that really speaks to kind of the grimness and the gravity of the situation. So. Um, it's really been ramped up in the past few years in Xinjiang as they've uh, kind of opened the forced labor camps and kind of um, it's called their strike, the Chinese government called it their strike, strike back hard policy, I believe. Um, and obviously they kind of market it as being, you know, anti-extremist, but that's you know, obviously not the full story or the story at all. Uh, and so due to these techniques, um, the birth rate in Xinjiang has fallen by 85% over the past few years. And that's really extraordinary, you know, often in, in a in newly industrialized countries you see birth rates go down you do not see them plummet that much and that is also just a massive uh, statistical evidence and it's a hallmark of uh, genocide and uh, so Rahima who is one of the biggest campaigners in the UK who uh, is from the region herself uh, in a recent webinar she she spoke about how uh, even before um, the kind of the complex of the forced labor camps was as big uh, as it is now. Um, so in 2016, there were um, testimonies of pretty much all the weak women in a certain area of Xinjiang and, and other areas, uh, essentially being rounded up and uh, forced out their homes to uh, be forced to be sterilized. Um, it often took the form of IUDs. Uh, sometimes it took the form of hysterectomies. 
and uh, IEDs, um, uh, from what I know about them, they're kind of, you know, small kind of, uh, kind of components that are put, you know, into the uterus and they uh, facilitate contraception. Um, but it's not an easy thing to do to have, uh, or it can be, you know, painful, dangerous. Many women have allergic reactions. Um, and uh, she spoke about how even the women who had these, you know, awful horrific, it's awful horrific enough to obviously have your fertility dictated to by the government um, that's hostile, especially to you. Um, I think that um, it, it's also brutal to think about how the women who um, had these allergic reactions, which were actually, you know, fairly ish common to these kind of devices being put to you, um, they weren't allowed to have them removed. Um, and she spoke about how when women in those kind of situations would try to have them removed, obviously women who didn't have any kind of reaction would have even, you know, usually try to, to have them removed because they knew that they know that the government wouldn't have let them. Um, they had to have, you know, like something like five to 10 uh, stamps by different gov local government authorities on this letter to try and have it removed. And I mean, could you just, I think, you know, could you just imagine that happened to you in the UK? I mean, try and put yourself in those shoes and imagine if that was the situation. Um, and it, it's just really devastating. And I think that <clears throat> actually sometimes when when you talk to Western people about this, because, you know, nowadays we're so kind of comfortable with, you know, things like abortion and contraception, I think that it, it doesn't necessarily sink in sometimes. Um, so, for example, people often say, well, you know, there's too many people on, uh, on the planet anyway. So, you know, you know, we should lower the birth rate. And it's like, well, you know, I don't think that you would say the same thing if you're being forcibly sterilized and you can't have any more children or any children at all. And possibly, as we're going to go on to, having your uh, or existing children taken away from you. I mean, it, it's just trying to think about. And I think that there's a lot of Western, especially complacency when it comes to uh, this issue in particular, unfortunately. And can I just say it plays into the, the wider aims of the Chinese um, Communist Party, which is which is often people when you you know you use the word genocide I was previously speaking about and you think, oh, it's 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 a Holocaust style thing where people are put in gas chambers and just killed off immediately. That's not what the Chinese Communist Party are doing, but it doesn't make it any less genocidal. What they're doing is it, as, as a lot of activists have said, they're not doing a quick, fast kill every single Uyghur out there. It is an incredibly slow wiping out and erasure of their culture, their language, their history. I mean, Nurziman, who I was speaking about earlier, she didn't even know that they had a that, that East Turkestan had a national flag. She didn't even know that until she moved to Turkey when she was an adult. And she said, what do you mean we have a flag? No, we don't, we, we never were a country. Her entire understand, and she's an incredibly educated woman, her entire understanding of where she's from, who she is, um, her, her identity is completely has been taken away. Um, and it's, it, it's, that's why it's interesting when we talk about full sterilization. It's, like I said, it's all part of the wider aim of slowly wiping them out. And that's part of their massive programs into, you know, uh, moving uh, lots of Han Chinese people from other parts of the country, moving them into the area, diluting Uyghur culture, not allowing them to speak their own language banning uh, cultural traditions, all of those things are very much part of, you know, wiping out and also religion, you know, um, any form of beards, uh, sort of uh, Islamic, obviously they're Muslims, uh, banning them from having long beards, all these kinds of things are all part of the wider sort of cultural genocide, um, you know, complemented very nicely by forced sterilization. Yeah, I think it's also really important to for people to understand that even if they are not in these concentration camps, if they're in Xinjiang, it is one of the biggest police states in the world. In every single point, there are cameras watching their every single move. There is not one part where they have freedom. 
it's described as it was described by a journalist there as like being in an open air prison. That's what it's like because there are cameras everywhere. And by the way, just to make you all feel better, the same cameras that are watching them, the Hikvision ones, are the same ones that are all over our country because the government think it's acceptable to use the same companies. So it's, you know, we are also complicit by engaging with these companies, the UK government. But yeah, it is the surveillance there is like nothing else. They are not allowed to communicate with outside members of family. Nerziman hasn't spoken to her family since I think 2017, 2018, where they all just disappeared. If they are found to be speaking to people outside of Xinjiang, they are taken to concentration camps. Their phones are checked, they're tapped. They are, I mean, it is it is absolutely horrific. So like you said, it's not just about being in the concentration camps. Life for Uyghurs around the whole of Xinjiang are, it is massively affected and it's not normal. Yeah. Um that yeah that's why i think it's important to say that because i think a lot of people focus on the fact that there are these you know you can google them bbc found a lot you know they discover lots of footage um of these concentration camps from an aerial perspective but then you see the pictures of the amount of like you know police that they have in that state alone and how much they concentrate the entirety of the running of the state based on what the Uyghur Muslims are doing and how they're interacting and who they're interacting with. So even if they have their family members taken away and that's, you know, that's enough already to cause long lasting damage, they then have the trauma of the fact that they cannot live their lives free. Um, and I think, yeah, that's something that it just, it should make everybody want to just do something about it and do it right away. Um, and I think that's why I think it's important then to talk about you know, the fact that children then taken away from their mothers. So not only do the mothers then likely have their, you know, hysterectomy or, you know, they have their forces be sterilized. They then have their children taken away and they have no idea where their children are going. All they know is that likely their, you know, their culture is going to be stripped of them. They're going to be brainwashed to, you know, sing the Chinese national anthem, to learn Chinese, to not know of their heritage, you know, to know nothing other than, China is the place that they are and that they have no other culture and background so if Georgia you want to pick up on this I think that's yeah definitely definitely yeah yeah and when you were just uh, speaking about the forced labor camps I mean it's it's uh, and the footage that we have of them and you know how how uh, the images we've seen in the media of them and sort of their, their guards and barbed wire etc it's interesting to know um, and tragic to note really that um, these kindergartens and orphanages uh, where a lot of these children who've been completely separated from both you know their parents and their extended families are basically being shipped to um, um, they are uh, you can also see images of them that they're covered you know in, in barbed wire you know there are guards etc and you know obviously the Chinese uh, representatives uh, in the western media obviously uh, not obviously um they uh, regularly try to uh, kind of just excuse these ways, you know, that they're basically like social care homes, like we have obviously have in the UK and other worlds, um, or, you know, they're just schools. And it's like, well, you know, I've been to school. Uh, and also I know people who have been in the social care system and actually um, my father used to work at a children's care home and they're not covered in barbed wire. Um, <laughs> obviously there's, there's a component to places where you, uh, children are living or, or going to school that you need to protect them, but, I mean, the only the only instance I can think of is a, is a school with that kind of protection is actually a, a lot of uh, Jewish schools in the UK uh, have, uh, you know, tons of uh, protection and stuff because of the threat of uh, terrorist attacks and bulletproof glass, etc. That's the only example I can think of. Um, and also, you know, uh, schools in the US where there are big issues with school shootings, etc. 
But other than that, those kind of places aren't usually covered with those with those that kind of security level, right? So you have to think about it when you're seeing those images. And those are the images that we see. Those are the images that we're permitted to see by the Chinese government. Think about what we're not seeing. Um, and like I was saying earlier about um, forced sterilization, et cetera, being a real hallmark of genocide and oppression, um, the separation of children from their parents is, is another one. Um, I mean, just think about, um, let's say you're a practicing Christian, Muslim, Jew, whatever, uh, in any country. Um, let's say you have certain values uh, and certain things you want to pass down and cultural heritage, religious beliefs that you want to hand down to your children. If your children are taken away from you when they're, I don't know, two years old, five years old, even 10 years old, they're not going to know any of those things. Uh, all they're going to know is what they're taught by, um, you know, teachers, instructors in these facilities, uh, which is the only things, of course, as Laura said, the only things they're taught are things that are permitted by the Chinese government, which we know is a totalitarian oligarchy. Um, so not only uh, are they having their, their cultural heritage and obviously their choices and their parents' choices completely wiped away and having the trauma of being separated from their families and extended families, um, they also don't know any better. So, um, you know, I mean, I mean, it, it's just tragic to think about. And and it's all in it's, the name of counter extremism of a five year old, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. is just so which is, absolutely hilarious. Yeah, I mean, ludicrous. yeah, because obviously what they're doing is is I mean, extremism is a word that is is you know, it, it obviously denotes real problems, but it's it's quite a subjective term and. It's clear, it's clear that China from, you know, the post 9 left world, world has uh, co-opted this kind of this kind of vocabulary in regards to terrorist threats that do exist around the world Absolutely. and is using it against every single thing they could think of in Xinjiang, including, you know, just the just the voluntary uh, practices and lifestyles of this culture that's existed for, you know, nigh on a thousand and years. That's how they do it. That, that's how, that's the what they criticise mm. before they send them to concentration camps. They're, what they are accused of, are uh, what, what Nursey Man's family were accused of, were, I think, thinking about planning a terrorist attack. Not planning one, but thinking about planning one, which is completely unfounded, first of all, and secondly, completely ludicrous, because everything, like you said, is masked, shrouded under this sort of banner of counter-extremism. And that kind of gives everyone a carte blanche to say, all right, we'll get in there because counter-extremism, absolutely serious. And just jumping on from the children thing, it's interesting because though most of the children who are taken are taken from parents who one of them has been sent off to, you know, um, uh, a forced factory, a factory where they are forced into forced labour and um, the other fam uh, family member can often be in a concentration camp. So that's where Nerziman thinks her nieces and nephews are because she knows that her sister-in-law is in a forced labour um, camp and the other one is in a concentration camp, her, her, her brother. So that's where she suspects all of her nieces and nephews are. And like Georgia said, that all they will be taught is our Chinese history. They will be taught that they are Han. They will be taught that uh, Mandarin and Hence why educated women like Nerziman end up at, you know, in their 20s when they move to Turkey, questioning the notion of what their identity is and not, never even knowing that they had a national flag. That's how it happens, you know, when we question it and we think, how can that possibly happen in the 21st century? That's how it happens. Yeah, I mean, there's just nothing really you can say to justify it. I mean, it's it plain and clear and has been for several years that they are just using, you know, they are just using any excuse possible to blanketly wipe, wipe out this culture. Um, and I remember my dad telling me really when I was younger about 
um, the Turkish government doing this with the Kurds um, and, you know, basically using this similar sort of justification in that all the Kurds were terrorists and that's why they needed to be wiped out and that they didn't have their own flag, they didn't deserve to have their own culture and, you know, they didn't deserve to have their own language. And um, I remember sitting there thinking, but why is that known and allowed to happen? You know, and I was quite young at this point. And then I remember like, hearing about this and thinking this is very similar situation completely different in lots of aspects but the Chinese government is using that as an excuse not that it would have to anyway because it, as you said it's you know it is a totalitarian state and they can do what they please because they do have the control of you know almost every well every single aspect of the state um I think that is what is extremely concerning is the fact that every every country pretty much continues to trade with them um, you see a sort of similar rhetoric when you hear of the atrocities committed by the governments in the UAE and how we still sell arms to them regardless of what they do, you know, with Princess Latifah, I don't know if you've heard of that case, um, but we still continue to, and we will do because trade until we put that, until we put the human rights over trade, trade will be prioritised and will continue to be, which is why hopefully this genocide amendment will be passed and will be a, signif a signifier to others in the international community. Um, and the EU actually that we need to take a stand on this. Um, so Laura, I don't know if you want to talk about organ harvesting. I know you wrote right. an article actually for us about it. Um, and it did, I mentioned earlier, actually, that it did get a lot of tra traction on um, our page because it's something that people don't associate. They maybe hear about the forced sterilization, the forced labor, but they do not hear about this. I mean, it's so harrowing. Yeah. You can't almost imagine it. I know that sounds insane, but you, you, it's not something that you can even consider to happen in the 21st century. And this kind of notion of Chinese forced organ harvesting, this isn't new, you know, this happened with the Falun Gong um, group from the 90s, and it was very much a 90s understanding. But actually, you know, in my opinion, it's ended up, as I said in the article, being, a, you know, an international human rights blind spot. You know, we, we have overlooked it for so many different reasons, partly because China, it was in 2016, they kept 2015, 2016, they came out saying they changed their policy about organ donation and changed it to voluntary based. First of all, the notion that it wasn't voluntary based before 2015 is crazy to me when I look at it. Um, but actually, that's not what's happened. You know, there are there is so much evidence. The fact that approximately 60 to 100,000 organ transplants take place in China every year, which is six to 10 times what the Chinese Communist Party admit to. That should raise alarm bells for anyone because why are they not admitting to that? Something like organ harvesting is something that a country should be proud of. You know, it's something that's, that's positive for the state. If they're hiding it, where are those organs coming from? Um, and actually analysis uh, undertaken post 2015 by a Chinese studies research fellow, um, very clearly showed that there is a Chinese on-demand service for organs where you can get an organ within days or weeks, um, where at, in comparison to the average wait for a kidney is about two and a half to three years in the UK and three years in the US. So just to give you some context, it's not normal. You should not be having, you should not be able to get an organ within a, a matter of days. Um, and this, this happens all over China. There is an absolute ton of research on this. And what it points to very, very clearly is it's indicative of there being a blood-typed pool of living donors able to be executed on demand. 
that is now widely thought. Um, the China Tribunal last year, led by Sir Geoffrey Nice, very clearly showed that the massive amounts of uh, testimony of the mass scale of collection of blood samples, DNA, intimate med medical data, CT scans, X-rays and ultrasounds, all of the Uyghur people, whether they're detained or not, all of that shows because most people think, oh, why are they doing that? There's no reason. Ignore it. It doesn't matter. Actually, it very much points to them being used as an organ bank, um, which is what's happening. Uh, they are shipped across the country. There were even evidence of people calling hospitals, asking for organs, asking where they were from and then saying, oh, the Uyghur detainee will be arriving within a matter of days it's happening. So this is a billion dollar industry for China. This is massive. They are making an absolute fortune. A lot of the time, uh, it's largely from Muslim states because they want what they call halal organs. So there is, people are involved in this all around the world. Some people who are desperate for organs in other parts of the world and, and cannot wait any longer, um, they then use this service and go to China to get these organs. So it's something that we should all be aware of. Some of these people are even being having their organs taken when they are still conscious. Um, there are horrific, horrific first-hand accounts of people either having done this themselves and escaped China since, um, one of which I think I wrote uh, one of the testimonies in the article on your website now. Um, and and it, it's harrowing. There are no two ways about it. Um, it's absolutely disgusting. So yeah, if if you ever had to question it, just take a look at, you know, a lot of the evidence that's there, including the tri China Tribunal, and um, you will see the mounting evidence of which no country is willing to stand up and do anything about at the moment. Yeah, I've just, um, I've actually got some of the testimony up that you put in the article, and I think it's quite important that I read a tiny bit of it, um, just because as much as we can point people there, it's, you know, it, if you don't, I mean, if you're listening to this, keep listening, because it, <laughs> it's a very difficult topic, but it's extremely worth just having those difficult conversations. Um, so this is the testimony um, from, um, I think it was the early 2000s, I think that you found it. Um, yeah, so this was in the early 2000s. And I know it's from a while ago, but the reason being is that people can't escape this. So this is from an earlier one. So that's why it's the most recent one I could find, but there are multiple accounts sort of um, who aren't willing, who are still willing to be anonymous. And, but this is, this is an important one to um, yeah. read out, I think. Yeah, so it was a former intern um, at one of the um, army hospitals um, in China. So it starts off saying, the prisoner was brought in, tied hand and foot, but very much alive. The army doctor in charge sliced him open from chest to belly button and exposed his two kidneys. Cut the veins and arteries, he told his shocked intern. He did as he was told. Blood spurted everywhere. The kidneys were placed in an organ transplant container. Then the, do the doctor ordered um, X to remove the man's eyeballs. Hearing that, the dying prisoner gave him a look of sheer terror and froze. I can't do it, he told the doctor, who then quickly scooped out the man's eyeballs himself. This is this is eyeballs. Like I just this is somebody's eyes. This is this is it's a still conscious. Like conscious. it's beyond, it's beyond anyone's thought process to imagine, first of all, the people having to do it, secondly, the prisoners who are having that done to them. And the point is the Chinese government can then say to that family, Oh, he died whilst in detention. There is no, there will be no repercussions. There is no way of finding the body. There is no way of any form of retribution on the Chinese government in this. So, you know, that's why it's so easily done. Yeah, um, I don't know if you 
ever um, read Handmaid's Tale um, by Margaret Atwood, but this screams to me the the fears that she had when she was writing this in the 60s, um, because she obviously wrote this during a time in which contraception, loads of religious uh, sort of conservatives in America worried about contraception and the hippie movement and women's liberation. And actually it is very, very scary that The Handmaid's Tale, which is a dystopian novel, Mm. it's applicable to China then you add in 1984 and then essentially you've got Xinjiang so yeah it's you know the sort of levels of surveillance the the Handmaid's Tale the all of these types the the different features of all of those books absolutely they they very much scream West China right now yeah and they are crucially written 40 50 years ago at this Mm. point um you know Margaret wrote this even further away and yet it's relevant in the 21st century in China a country which is you know got an economy that is the biggest and fastest growing economy in the world and this is just this is just sweeped under the carpet um yeah so I just there's just it's harrowing you're you're right and I think as you said Laura it is something that is important to be aware of because it is a billion dollar industry and once again we come back to this theme that trade is something that China will continue to prioritize and like you said the um Uyghur that you, that you actually interviewed she obviously noted actually that you need to cut China where it hurts and this is going to be where it hurts mm. um, and so- speaking about that if you don't mind corporate responsibility that's exactly what she's talking about she yeah. said very clearly to me she said you know the number one way of stopping China if you are an individual and you are not part of the government and you can't make you know global decisions is make personal choices she said she lives in Turkey and she said I will not buy anything made in China she said it's very hard to do it in other parts of the country. Um, her sister lives in America and she finds it almost impossible to find things not made in China. It, it, in, you know, since I had that interview with her, I have tried for the past few months to stop buying made in China in this country. And let me tell you, it is nigh on impossible. I have worked my entire family. We spend hours searching, emailing companies, asking them where things are made. And most of the time, they just won't give you an answer, particularly the big companies. ASOS, perfect example. They actually told me that they give me the information that I they think I need to know. And one of those things is not where the product's made. That's disgraceful. There should be accountability. We, in my opinion, my ideal is when I go onto a website, I should have a box where I can tick, don't nothing made in China. And then all of the filter comes up of things not made in China. It is there is a long tradition of in in civil rights movement, human rights movement of boycotting countries' trade for the sake of human rights. South Africa, apartheid, companies and individuals made choices not to buy things made in South Africa because of the way they treated the black population. We should be doing exactly the same thing. There is a genocide going on in China, and yet we as individuals are still very happily buying from companies who use Uyghur forced labor. It was only last year that there was a report by ASPI, an Australian sort of um, think tank, um, that 83 major brands are implicated in Uyghur forced labor. These include Zara, Nike, Volkswagen, Apple, all of these companies are still profiting off Uyghur forced labor. And if you question it and you think, oh my God, it must be like one out of a million, you are wrong, okay? You are absolutely wrong because 80,000 Uyghurs are forcibly placed in factories to make your items. One in five cotton products worldwide are made from cotton produced by Uyghurs in Xinjiang. One in five. So when you next go and pick up a cheap Zara top, a cotton Zara top, and it says made in China, there is a very, very high chance 
that the cotton that you are wearing has been picked by people undergoing genocide. And just think about that before you make those consumer choices, because it's so easily done. And we've all done it. We've all picked up. We've all bought all of these products. But now we know you cannot turn around and say, I had no idea. I plead ignorance. You are not ignorant anymore. So make better choices, people. And as the consumer, we have the power right at the end of the day. You can choose not to buy products from a company that commits genocide. That's your choice. And I am trying really, really hard. It's not always easy. We all do it. But I'm trying so hard that every, all my Christmas presents, half the Christmas presents I got given, I had to send back because they were made in China. You would be astonished. I challenge you, honestly, to go into your room and have a look around and see where things are made from, because almost everything will be made in China, um, including, you know, kitchen products, every, all the utensils, all of it made in China. So yeah i i occasionally go and protest outside the volkswagen down the road um, and stand there with a big banner in the middle of the road because they actually have factories in xinjiang um, and they use uyghur forced labor just like they use jews in the holocaust to make their cars so just think about those things before um you make your choices and not to i sounded very angry there but you know what i mean it is something that really matters and it's very hard for individuals to feel like they have control over massive issues taking place in China, but actually here you do have control. Uh, your purse matters and the less money you spend. And actually, every I was told by someone recently in the fashion industry, every single time you send an email to a company and say, I will not buy your product because it's made in China because of Uyghur forced labor. All of those words are put in algorithms and at big meetings they have, the amount of times those words are mentioned are spoken about and they make decisions on where they buy their things as a result of that. If they think they're getting bad press, Charles Tirrett, the big uh, shirt company, um, the male shirt company, they have stopped most of their production in China because people were complaining that they didn't want their products made in China. These things do make a difference. So don't, don't ever think that you're powerless. I send emails to companies on a painfully regular basis saying I won't buy your products because it's made in China um, and because of the Uyghur genocide so yeah if you want to do something this is something you can do yeah I think it is really important a lot of the people that we listen to this are people um, who buy stuff from Zara um, and you know ASOS and we're all guilty of it um, if I look around my room now the amount of stuff made in China it will yeah it would be it is criminal how much China has control over the amount of products buy second hand buy from small businesses you know all of the and there are so many reasons to do it you know buy second hand some businesses charity whatever the reason is it's great yeah i'm really i think it's really important actually to highlight the second hand thing because at that point they have already those products have already been made and if you are say if you need a new coat so for instance i use depop all the time i use depop to buy my coats the last one i've got is from depop mm -hmm. um i bought my laptop second hand my phone second hand everything is second hand mainly because of cost but as I've become older and more conscious and uh, more conscious of where I should use my purchasing power, actually, it matters if you buy things secondhand because the cycle of a, the environment is less. But also you are not then contributing by buying it brand new, because if you're going to buy it anyway, and lots of people will do anyway, because it is a big ask to tell people to not use anything from China, because Absolutely. that is that is a big ask at this point in time, maybe 10, 15 years when other countries start to dominate more. Um maybe that would start to change but for now just reduce it if you have a choice and if you ever go to a shop and you see a choice between made in e uk e wherever else or made in china 
just have a think be like mm, actually i can spend that 50p more and buy it made in the uk and sort of happening if you're able to do that great but you know the, and these companies just to warn everyone they will come back if you email them and say oh it's nothing to do with us we don't have weaker force label all the rest of it most of the time the vast vast majority of them still do because what they do is they abrogate responsibility lower down their supply chain so they will say oh we don't do it yeah you don't on your shop floor i get you don't have uyghurs there forcibly selling all your stuff i get that but who got the cotton to make your products and they abrogate responsibility and say oh the supply chain's too complicated for us to know that that's where you've got to call upon them because that's what they do and it's not too complicated other companies recently, giant corporations like H&M, have made a big effort to do that. They're not perfect, but they've made a big effort to find lower down their supply chain and actually source that because they were criticised for the Uyghur forced labour issue. The others, like Nike and Zara, have not made those changes because it's too much effort. So just bear that in mind in when they come back and reply to you, because you might not have the answers. And I get that. But that is what they're doing. Yeah, I think this leads quite nice on to sort of like, what can we do next? I think that's, you know, it it is as much as everybody thinks it is only sort of top down it's not I think it's I've always thought a lot of change happens bottom up because we are the people who buy from them without us they don't exist they don't they don't profit um and as soon as you kick up a fuss they might take a while to listen but they will eventually have to listen because they will lose their purchasing power um and they will just stop generating profit so I think you know what do you think we should be doing um, maybe as students, as adults, as consumers, what do you think we should be doing? Georgia, do you want to take this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> first of all, obviously, I second completely everything Laura just said about um, kind of making your decisions when you're buying things. I think also, you know, nowadays, especially, you know, as girls, not to stereotype, we love shopping. Um, and sometimes we don't even need certain, certain clothes you want to buy, you know. Um, I know that before some of this information came out, I used to shop in Zara uh, a lot and also Uniqlo. Since uh, since some of these exposés about uh, the cotton production has come, have come out, I'll never buy from them again and, until they uh, perform this. So I think just, just small things like that. And like you were saying, buying secondhand is great, especially if you can't necessarily, uh, especially as students, um, <laughs> afford to necessarily uh, buy from certain ethical brands if they're more expensive. I think it's really important. Also, um, Kind of shopping aside I guess um, the most important thing um, is that that really is strength in numbers like Laura was saying in terms of emailing uh, corporations that kind of thing but also um, just just spreading the word and learning more about it I mean if you're listening to this podcast you're obviously interested in the issues so I think it's important to to you know make sure that you're bringing up this issue with your friends family um, if you're in university and maybe you study politics and it's relevant if it comes up in discussion mention it um, I know that um, this was an issue that was uh, on my radar like Laura for a while before I joined Foundation for Legal Freedom and I know it was on a lot of my friends and family's minds but since I've been involved in sharing these posts I know that I've definitely raised awareness just among the people I know um, so I think that everybody has the power to do that everybody has the power to um, to spread information you know it's free to do that um, which is obviously great um, and so um, on that note, um, with the Genocide Amendment going back uh, for review in the House of Commons uh, in a matter of days, really, I would definitely say you need to be writing or rather emailing your MP. Um, so uh, in our bio uh, on Instagram, Foundation for Legal Freedom, we have a link tree. It has links to all the important things. It has a link to an email template that Laura said. So if you're a busy person like most of us, you don't have to sit there typing up email and thinking about 
you know everything and writing an essay you can you can you know copy that email tailor it to to um sort of maybe your own style and then you can email it to your mp using the website find your mp and obviously like you're saying if you're a student you might be registered in two addresses for voting so definitely email both of them and even maybe if you're listening to this and you're under 18 you know you are a future voter in the next election you will be voting so make sure that they know that um, because ultimately their MPs, their representatives, they're accountable to you. And especially like Laura was saying, one of the biggest things, one of the best, um, one of the best kind of sections of parliament you should be targeting are MPs that are in government and living living or outside of government, but they're living in uh, or representing swing constituencies because they know that um, they know that their power is quite sort of uh, quite precarious and they know that their seat will be more risky than other MPs, so they uh, are more likely to want to appeal to uh, members of the public than others. Um, yeah, and also just countering misinformation, there are tons of myths about this issue as we've really discussed today. Uh, in person and online, there's a lot of misinformation. We know that um, we know that representatives of the Chinese government and uh, uh, members of the People's United Front, which is basically sort of the youth of the Chinese government are using platforms like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram to spread misinformation about the issue, which is obviously, you know, there's a massive irony to it because, you know, officially those platforms are actually banned in China. Um, a lot of people get around it, obviously, you know, um, government representatives get around it and then also, you know, normal people just use VPNs if they can get away with it, but the, the, there are massive penalties uh, for, for using them. And so, it, you know, it's just massively ironic. So I think you need to be, you need to be informed, uh, as informed as you can be on these issues so that you can always counter that misinformation, whether it comes up <clears throat> on a Twitter post, whether it comes up at, obviously not right now, we're not really having dinner parties or like parties, but you know, students, you know, if they're having a party or an event or something, and they get into a discussion about this, it's great to, you know, know that you have the facts behind you to kind of counter this, because, uh, uh, there's a lot of misinformation out there which is really unfortunate yeah I agree especially um I think it's really important to contact your MP I've, I've said this already um it, the proximity to this this vote on the amendment is very very close and considering the margins that it didn't pass last time there is a chance that it could and you know we are we have left the EU to be sovereign in our decision making quote unquote so this is the time that we're supposed to demonstrate to the international community that we are going to be world leading again because there was a point in which we did try try is the operative word but we did try and lead um in terms of humanitarian effort um it's been great talking to both of you um thank you so much for coming thank in you. Um, Thank you for speaking about this. We're really grateful. Yeah, no, it's been really great to have you on here. Um, I just want to plug their Instagram, of course. Um, Foundation for number four, um, Uyghur Freedom. Um, they've also got a sister organization that is linked in the bio. So make sure you click on that. Um, there's lots of very informative posts. Um, they're very well researched as well. Like we talked about misinformation. They're not just posts, you know, just chatting. They have they are very well sourced. Um and students listening chat about this in your seminars, whether it's English, history, politics, language, it's extremely important to just bring this up because they, it just creates a channel for conversation. Mm -hmm. um, I think you'll both agree with that. Um, we are the future and then we are gonna be the people that determine whether these corporations succeed or not. So it's been great chatting to both of you. Um, thank you very much for coming. Um, it's been very interesting. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We are the University of Exeter's political academic journal and are doing this podcast to add a new medium and discuss more ideas. Keep listening to this podcast. There'll be one released every Thursday. 
Thank you for listening to this week's podcast again and we'll see you next time.